This is Legacy Battle coming at you on YouTube, Facebook, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google Podcast, Google Podcasts. If you're interested in sponsoring this episode, hit us up in the comments section. I'm Michael Adams here, creator of Legacy Battle. Joining me tonight from the Gridiron Battle Zone, Brian King, Penn State Collegiate All-Star Kevin Adams. We also we're also joined by an Olympian swimmer who represented the U.S. at the 96, 2000, and 04 Olympics. Listen to his medal counts. World Championships, three gold, three silvers. Pan Pacific Championships, four golds, a silver. Pan American Games, gold, silver, bronze. And of course, at the Olympics, five golds, three silvers, two bronze. He's never afraid to speak his mind. Ten-time U.S. Olympic gold medalist, Gary Hall, Jr. Gary, thank you for coming on tonight. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me. So we'll talk to him uh, after this debate about his career a little bit. Tonight's debate is the greatest Olympic moment, and we're going to start with uh, Lawrence Lemieux. Kevin, you're up. All right, Lawrence, Canadian sailor. Uh, he competed in the 84 uh, Summer Olympics in the star class and uh, the 88 Summer Olympics in the fin class. Uh, he's famous for his actions uh, in the 88 Olympics, um, which resulted in him being awarded the, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, the Pierre de Coubertin medal. On uh, September 24th uh, in 88, uh, the sailing competition was underway. The wind suddenly picked up, started blowing at about 35 knots, um, and the Singapore team's uh, dinghy had capsized in their race. Uh, the men were thrown from the boat. Uh, they were injured and needed assistance. Um, and at this time, uh, Lawrence was actually in second place in his race. Uh, near the halfway point of his race, he noticed uh, their shipwreck, and um, you know he deviated from his course to go and assist and rescue them. Uh, he pulled them from the water uh, and waited until a patrol boat came uh, to rescue them. Um, and once they got back to shore, and you know the patrol took them, he then once got back into his race, uh, rejoined his heat, uh, and he actually ended up going from second to twenty-second place uh, because of that. Um, however. Because of this, his actions and in, in doing that, uh, the International Yacht Racing Union decided to reinstate his position where he went off course, uh, giving him actually second place finish in the race. Though he finished the Olympics uh, in 11th for his class, um, at the award ceremony, uh, the president of the International Olympic Committee awarded him that medal, the Pierre de Coubertin Medal for Sportsmanship, um, and stated, by your sportsmanship, self-sacrifice, and courage, you embody all that is right uh, with the Olympic ideal. Um, at the time, he was only the fifth recipient of this medal uh, to receive it during a games in which he was a competitor. So the man risked his position and a chance at a medal uh, to go save people that needed help and needed assistance. Um, selfless act. Uh, maybe the only time to go to the Olympics, and he, he pulled that, that action. Uh, hats off to him. I think that's one of the greatest moments. So Gary, let me ask you, you have spent your career in the pool. I'm always shocked that I've never seen someone cramp up and need rescued. I mean, has that ever occurred in, in, in your time? Yeah, in 2000, Sydney Olympics, there was a swimmer from Papua New Guinea. Um, and there, is, there wasn't a swimming pool in the country. Um, and he qualified uh, for the Olympics, the time standard, uh, by swimming in a river, uh, so the story goes, and he gets up on the blocks uh, early heat of the 100 freestyle. Um, the two other swimmers that were in that heat were disqualified on the start. They pull him up out of the water. They put him back on the block. The gun goes off, and he barely finished the race. 
there was, it, it looked like there was going to be a drowning. Uh, and, and I think everybody was looking around for the lifeguard. Um, and, and it, there was some real question whether he was going to make it or not. Uh, the, the Australian crowd that night cheered as loud for Eric the Eel Musambani uh, as they did for their own swimmers uh, when he completed the race. Is that something you think, if you were in the pool, would, would I know when you're an athlete, you're just so in tune you know, to do what you got to do, finish the race. Do you think you would even notice something like that when you're in that zone? This was uh, an early heat, and so I was competing in that same event, and I was in a later heat. This is in the prelims. Uh, you have to qualify through the prelim uh, to the semifinals and then on to the finals if you're the top eight fastest. And so this was heat one. Uh, the chances of somebody from heat one making the finals pretty slim because they stage the faster swimmers toward the later heats. And so when we heard the crowd going crazy, I mean, the only time that you hear the audience screaming that loud is when there's a world record being broken. It, it, we, it caught our attention. Everybody was kind of pulling, looking over the shoulders of the heats in front of them to see what was happening, what was going on out there, who was breaking a world record in heat one. Wow. Incredible. Uh, uh, just an incredible act of, of bravery and kindness for your guy there, Kevin. So let's move on to Dan Jansen. I'm representing Dan Jansen. He is a friend of this show. He's been on the show, and he really wanted to represent himself tonight, but he's on vacation in Greece, so with his wife, so we don't blame him for that. But uh, this is a man who had eight brothers and sisters. He was at the 84, 88, 92, and 94 Olympics, winning the gold at the 94. But the story behind it, uh, djfoundation.org, by the way, if you want to read more about this story. But uh, in 88, he was the favorite to win the 500 and the 1,000-meter races. And on February 14, 1988, his sister, Jane, died of leukemia. This was a few hours before he was to go out and skate, and they told him that morning that it happened. He goes out and skates the 500. He falls on the first turn. Four days later, he falls on the 1,000-meter the uh, race as well. So he got no medals in 88. Goes back to 92, no medals. So he decided to try to go again in 94, and the press was just extremely, extremely negative towards him. We, we did talk about that. Check out his show in our archives. You know, calling him a, a choke artist and, and that he's taking the spot of somebody else who could probably have a chance to win a medal. So 94 Olympics roll around. In the 500 meters, he finishes eighth. So things aren't looking good. And this is basically the end of his career there. And he goes to the 1,000 meters, the last race of his career. He wins the gold. Not only does he win it, he sets a new world record. And he promised his sister back all the way in 88 before she died, that he would win her a gold medal. So this was like a dedication medal to her life, to her memory. And you got to remember the time period of 94, this was a great story, but this was during like the melee and fiasco that was Tanya Harding and, and uh, Nancy Kerrigan. So you had that going on. But so with Dan, I mean, Tony Hawk um, and curler John Schuster, they've credited him with, you know, being their perseverance for overcoming and, and helping and never giving up. So just an amazing athlete, amazing man. Uh, everything I know about him has been pretty. Oh, yeah, yeah. So 
Yeah, I watched that live. I remember that story very clearly. Uh, that was uh, all chips on the table moment uh, in Olympic history. And uh, I love seeing that. I love seeing that. There was um, a friend of mine who was extremely accomplished, Jenny Thompson, uh, 12 Olympic medals, a world record holder. And there was so much pressure on her to win an individual gold medal. Not, she had won silvers and bronze in the individual events, but couldn't win the gold as an individual. She had won tons of gold medals in relays, and she was criticized, criticized uh, relentlessly for kind of not being able to get it done at the big show. And it's just so unfair, just so unfair. She was a team captain. Uh, she inspired, she contributed so many other people on the team, and uh, selflessly. She's a doctor today at the front lines of uh, healthcare, um, you know, and, and just a genuine good person. But um, it's hard to do. It's hard to do. You can be one of the best athletes in the world, and, and you only got one shot at this thing. Uh, you know, maybe if you're lucky and, and, and persistent, you know, a few shots at this thing. Um, and so to see uh, – just the, the last second buzzer shot for Dan Jensen, right, uh, and, and be able to hit it. Um, you know, we, we can all hit a half-court shot. You know, we, we take lots of shots, and then no, nobody's watching. But when everybody is watching, when all the pressure is there, oh, man, uh, it, it's, it's hard to do. And uh, to overcome all he went through, too, that's just a, it's an amazing story. A good American story, too, which is, which is good. So let's move on to – Abib, I'm going to get this wrong, Abibi Bakila. Abibi Bakila. Bakila. Abibi Bakila. So he was, um, he was a captain in the Ethiopian Army, and he began running at high-level marathons in 1956. So then in the 1960 Olympics in Rome, he competed for the first time outside of Ethiopia. And despite the absence of any kind of footwear, Abibi ran 26 miles over the black stop, uh, the black top, and the cobblestone of the city of Rome, and took the gold in 20 uh, in two hours, 15 minutes, and 16 seconds. It was a new world record time, and he was able to defeat uh, the Soviet Sergei Popov, who had who had held the previous record, and he was the favorite to win that race. So this Abibi win was significant in many ways. I mean, first off, to race barefooted is just amazing. Um, and then, in addition, Abibi, he opened the door for future Ethiopian racers uh, and really all East Africans uh, to compete at the Olympic level. Today, East Africans are a serious force of marathons and, and many other types of uh, races as well. So... Uh, what did Abibi do as an encore to this? Well, in 1964 at the Tokyo Olympics, he put on a pair of shoes this time, and he smashed his own world record by three minutes and five seconds to win the gold. But to be honest, you know, his legacy was already secure with that amazing barefoot run. So, Gary, is this the equivalent of maybe like you not having your wetsuit when you go out there to compete? <laughs> having my Speedo. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think we uh, garner any cheers if I uh, went without uh, my, my equipment uh, in the swimming pool. Uh, but um, it is amazing. Um, so the question that I have uh, about this is, 
you know, why did he choose to run it barefoot? Is it, you know, I, you know, because I've, I've heard versions of the story and, and that he didn't have shoes because he, he didn't have, didn't have, he didn't have the money to buy the shoes. Right. Yeah. Well, he was, yeah. I mean, he grew up in, in, in poverty, you know, initially and, and he learned over time just, just running around in, you know, his normal life without shoes. He became very accustomed to it. He sort of got the calluses on the bottom of his feet and that, you know, and so it was something that was sort of, you know, closer to second nature for him than, you know, obviously any of us. But the reason why he got accustomed to running barefoot is because abject poverty. He couldn't afford shoes. Right, right. There was no Nike sponsorship there for this guy. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so what's more amazing than he's got thick calluses on the bottom of his feet, he ran a marathon barefoot, mm-hmm. is that he overcame abject poverty. I mean, the, the, the no shoes part is like the least of the struggles if you're dealing with that level of lack of resources, lack of support. Right, that he couldn't even find a, somebody to give him a pair of shoes for the Olympic Games, um, and was still able to go in and do that. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's the kind of uh, underlying uh, remarkable feat that I see in this accomplishment. And uh, you know, after becoming an Olympic champion, then somebody was like, "Oh, here you go." Uh, the Federation finally ponied up a pair of shoes for him for the next Olympic Games. <laughs> we we'll always wonder what he would have ran. In that first Olympics, he was there if he had had shoes. But this is an awesome story. Uh, I, I love moments like that. And that's what the Olympics are all about. Uh, I mean, all three of what we we represent tonight, that's what the Olympics are all about. I love it. Good stories. We'll give a shout-out to the Miracle on Ice. They're represented in everything, so they don't need to be <laughs> on our list. And the Jamaican bobsled team, who was also on our prior show with uh, John Neighbor. So, you know, we, we've discussed them before. So let's just do our 30-second honorable mention, and then we'll take our vote, and then we'll have our Q&A for Gary. Uh, Brian, go ahead. Hi. Well, I want to shout out to Eric Redman. Um, he was a British uh, sprinter in the 1992 Olympics at Barcelona. And during the race, he snapped his hamstring, um, and he just collapsed to the track floor. Uh, despite the immense pain and disappointment, he began to struggle to get around the track. Um, his father came down from the stands and, and onto the track, put his arm around him, and helped him finish the race. Uh, just a very inspirational scene, and there really wasn't a dry eye in the house. Beautiful moment. Kevin. <clears throat> yeah, Joni Rochette uh, was nominated to represent Canada in the 2010 Winter Olympics after winning her sixth straight uh, Canadian national title. Um, shortly after she arrived at the Olympics in Vancouver, her mother suffered a sudden heart attack. Uh, and passed away uh, while she was uh, at practice. Um, Dan Jansen, who you represented, had actually reached out to her um, because of what he went through when his sister died uh, during the Calgary Olympics uh, that he competed in. So she actually still decided to compete uh, in her mother's honor. She skated to a Celine Dion song. Uh, Her mother was a fan of Celine Dion, um, and she scored her new personal best uh, that night and got third, the third highest score, and she ended up keeping her third place spot after the long program two days later uh, to retain that bronze medal. Um, and she also received the Terry Fox Award, um, and she was given the honor to be the flag bearer for Canada that year um, and got voted Female Athlete of the Year by the Canadian press because of her overcoming her mom's sudden heart attack and death. My honorable mention is Carrie Strug, American gymnast, part of the Magnificent 17. Um, 
U.S. was holding a slim lead at, at the Olympics, and they're on the vault. She does the, her first vault. She doesn't land right, um, ends up – she got a third-degree lateral sprain and, a, and tendon damage. Still goes out there, does the second one, knowing that she has to get a high score in order for them to win that gold medal. She does. The team wins the gold. But when she makes her landing on her second jump to win the gold, she quickly goes back to one foot, bows to the judges, and then falls to her knees and has to be helped off. And uh, her coach actually ended up carrying her up to the medal stand. And then they took her right to the hospital after that. And that was determined what had happened to her. So just a great story. Gary, any, any moments that sticks out to you? Hey, you know, it, there's so many. There's so many. And, and it's the un... Uh, it, NBC has an impossible job of covering the Olympic Games. Right? They, they, they are tasked with covering uh, so many athletes. And, and, and some of the most remarkable triumphs are not for the gold medal. You know, they're, they're uh, just being there. You know, and uh, every walk of life is represented, and uh, every form of adversity, um, every you know challenge imaginable, uh, has been overcome for the, 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 the breadth of these athletes uh, to be there representing their countries. And so, uh, I just like to give a shout out to all the untold stories, the ones that uh, we haven't read about, that we aren't discussing here tonight. Um, because those are remarkable people um, that have overcome so much and, and um, represented their countries, respectively, uh, proudly. Wonderfully so, said. Well said. All right, let's move on to our vote. I'm going to vote first tonight. I don't vote first often. So I'm going with Trevor Lawrence. As always, guys, can't vote for your own. So I'm going with Trevor Lawrence. Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback? Oh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Lawrence Lemieux, my bad. Got the draft on my mind. Got on the mind, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Lawrence Lemieux, I think him saving two lives, of course, is an amazing thing, but also he took himself out of an Olympic event, didn't know if he was just going to be disqualified or whatever, and that, that to me is the true Olympic spirit right there. So, Kevin, go ahead. Um. You know, there there's some studies out there that have shown that barefoot running actually increases the efficiency of running and reduces risk of injuries. Though, um, no, no, his reason for not having shoes, though, you know, you know, he didn't have the opportunity, so I'm not going to put that blame on him. Um, but that's why running companies are actually making running shoes that are thinner and, and smaller because more more people are actually want, wanting to run barefoot now. So that was just an interesting tidbit. We didn't uh, so ask actually, you for the science of it, but okay. I'm going <laughs> to have to go with Dan Jansen. Yeah. All right. Brian? Um, I mean, these are all remarkable stories, obviously. Um, the one that sticks out to me is Dan Jansen. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't a physical thing that was getting him. It was it was a mental thing. It was uh, you know the processing of the, the grief of the loss of his sister, and then for him to to finally overcome that and, and, and you know to ride out into the sunset with that gold medal was just an amazing moment to me. So that, that's my vote. Gary, who would you vote for? I went with uh, Jansen. Jansen is uh, yeah inspiring. It still is. Awesome. So win for Dan Jansen, and he didn't win just because he's a friend of the show. So <laughs> he earned it. 
All right, let's move on to our Q&A. Brian, you're first. Go ahead. Okay. Um, all right, Gary. So you've gone on record of being very critical of athletes who resort to performance-enhancing drugs. Um, what would you say to an athlete who is on the fence about deciding where not to gain an advantage through these means? You'll never know how good you were. Yeah, I, it, it's it's not worth it. Um, it's not worth it. You have to live with yourself. You, you can't, you know, you can lie to everybody else, but you can't lie to yourself. Right. And it, it's just it's, it, it's it's prevalent in sport. A lot of people do it. Um, you're going to have to be competing against people like that. Know that it's possible to beat them without resorting to cheating. It is. It is. Uh, there's too many people that, that, that have done it the honest way. And, and, and you know, um, it, it, it really isn't fair. You know, you can uh, stick up a gas station and steal $1,000. You're going to go to jail. Um, but if you rob somebody of, a, of a, an Olympic gold medal or an accomplishment in sport, uh, you know, that's worth a lot. Uh, a lot more than a thousand dollars, and um, you know that just because the system isn't in place to catch these cheaters, uh, you might get away with it. You might get away with it, but you have to live with yourself and the fact that you stole from somebody else that put in the work, that did it honestly, that did it the right way. Um, and it doesn't matter, you know, the Lance Armstrong that was, oh, everybody's doing it. Well, no, that's not true. You might have to dig down. Uh, 30 spots, you might have to dig down 50 spots, 150 spots, but somewhere down the line, there's an honest, hardworking athlete that got robbed. Right, right, right. Kevin. Uh, in 96, uh, you had won uh, two silvers uh, in the individual events and then uh, two two goals at the relays. And you had a pretty big um, robbery with uh, Alexander Popov. Uh, just curious, what was How'd that all get started, and, and how'd you uh, go into the Olympics that year in 96 uh, going up against him? I met uh, Popov, who was the uh, uh, reigning world uh, champion, Olympic champion, and world record holder in 1994. I was a teenager. It was my first uh, time representing the United States in international competition at the world championships. We go into the ready room, and I'm a nobody at this point, really, I, I totally unproven. I uh, never made a finals in an international meet. It was my first time. And uh, he went straight up to me and, and, and started uh, talking to me. I had no, uh, you know, uh, I had no idea that he knew who I was or anything like that. Um, but he immediately uh, started talking uh, trash, is the polite way to say it. He was talking shit. And, um, you know, asking me about medal counts and how, you know, why was the United States performing so poorly and that, you know, in a, uh, world championships passed, you know, the medal count was here and you're only here now. What, what, like, what's going on with the, you know, <laughs> the team? And I'm like, I, I have no idea. I, I just, you know, <laughs> I just work here. <laughs> I, don't, I, you know, I just, like, didn't. <laughs> And I couldn't figure out. I spent the entire time trying to process, like, does he just not speak English well because this is a second language, or is he really just an asshole? And um, he was really just an asshole. 
Um, so there were a lot of people that knew him and trained with him and said, he was a very nice guy. I never knew that. I only knew the competitive side. And he would do anything, anything to get a slight advantage. And so trying to get inside the head of his uh, opponents, who he viewed as a threat, ultimately, after years of processing this, I view that as something of a compliment that he knew right away that I was going to be the guy that was a threat to him, to his dominance in the sport. And he singled me out. And I had, he trained down in Australia, and I have Australian friends that trained with him at the Institute and said he was the nicest guy. But then all of a sudden, uh, a swimmer would have a breakthrough performance and he would single him out and totally like attack him and belittle him in practice and, and just needle at him, needle at him. And, and that, um, and so I don't know. That's that's a, a fierce competitor, and some of the stuff you have to deal with in sport. And it was a, definitely an eye-opening experience for me. And that, hey, this okay, this is how the game is played. Um, you know, that sports psychology is a thing, and everybody's looking to ruthlessly gain any advantage. So a lot of people probably don't know this, but you are a hero. You saved your sister's life. So can, 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 you, can you tell us a little bit about that? No, I did not save my sister's life. Um, you know, we were spearfishing. I, I assume this is the story that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. We were spearfishing. There was a shark attack. And the shark, uh, black type reef shark, bit my sister. Uh, came after me, started uh, trying to, to bite, and, and, and there was an altercation. I was punching the shark repeatedly in the face. It did absolutely nothing. I got some abrasions on my knuckles. Um, but other than that, we, we walked away unscathed while my sister got 19 stitches uh, in the arm. Um, it all happened really fast and a, a long time ago. I feel like I've told that story about uh, 2,000 times. <laughs> nice. Uh, we'll do one more each. Go ahead, Brian. Okay, um, for those Olympic fans who are unaware of the race club, uh, can you tell me what that is and what it means to you personally? Yeah, sure. Um, so I um, went to the, the world championships that I mentioned was uh, after uh, the summer after my freshman year in college. And at that time, this was so the dream team happened in 92. Uh, professional first first professional sport uh, players to uh, compete in the Olympics and and that was for basketball and then all the other sports kind of followed suit so at that in '94 it swimming was still if you accepted a plane ticket you were considered a professional athlete like if you accepted any money at all like the smallest amount of money you were considered a professional athlete and I knew that the people that I wanted to race against and, and beat were international and so I dropped my collegiate eligibility eligibility went pro after the world championships in 94 and um yeah just uh so it, that change that put me outside of the ncaa nest right which was such a support system for team up-and-coming swimmers and really the ncaa system does not get enough credit for being the farm team for Team USA at the Olympic Games. You never see the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee saying thank you, NCAA, for providing us with 95% of our athletes representing the United States, for kind of getting them to this jumping off point that, that you know, allows them to excel internationally at the Olympics. Um, so I, I, I left eligibility, and, and so I couldn't train with a collegiate team. 
I didn't have that support system in place. So I had to create that for myself. And so the race club became, uh, then there were iterations of it. It was a development, but uh, by the 2004 Olympics, it had been branded the race club. And it was a group of international professional level swimmers that were outside of the NCAA system. And, uh, you know, it, we, it was definitely um, a, uh, a case of all ships rise with the tide. You know, we were uh, all Olympic level swimmers and, and we were all better swimmers because we were training with and against each other. Uh, in the 2004 Olympics, um, five out of the eight finalists in the 50-meter freestyle were uh, teammates at the race club. Wow, that's impressive. Awesome. Yeah. Kevin. <clears throat> so you competed uh, Atlanta, Sydney, and Athens games. I was curious, uh, which one of those was your favorite, and was there a race in one of those that sticks out to you and is, like, your most memorable race? You know, all, all the races. This is, uh, you know, are, are pretty special. You know, relays are a very different experience than the individual wins. And, uh, you know, in 96, my best performances were by far on the relays. You know, I took a relay from third place to first place on the final leg and broke the world record and was very proud of that accomplishment. But there were still I, I, people that I could – they were polite about it, but, you know, if somebody said, you know, oh, what was your – oh, you, you're a swimmer. You competed in the Olympics? Yes. Uh, did you win any medals? Yes. Uh, you know, what were they in? If you say a relay, the reaction is very different than the individual event among the general public, people that don't – that aren't involved in sport, that don't appreciate that that's a really big deal. Right. Like that year. Um, and, and so I felt like the relay accomplishment was was slightly by naive people um, subpar to an Olympic individual uh, gold medal. And so I wanted to get the individual gold medal. And um, Atlanta was incredible because it was my first Olympic Games, my first exposure to something like that. I mean, swimmers don't join the sport for fame and fortune practiced at 5.30 in the morning every day before high school. Nobody's there except a coach and a stopwatch. That's your audience. And then one day you walk out and everybody's watching. There's a stadium of 17,000 people cheering um, and 1.2 billion people watching on TV. And so, like, to have that in the home country, home court advantage was really, really special. I'm looking forward to the Olympics coming back in 2028 to L.A. And, um, you know, Sydney, uh, swimming is a really big deal. It's, it, there's no professional base, basketball, baseball, or football. And there's rugby and there's swimming in Australia in terms of major sports. And, um, you know, it was nice to have that level of appreciation, even though they were all cheering vehemently against us. Uh, you know, they wanted to beat us so badly and, and were positioned to do so. And so uh, even though they were cheering against us, it was the total opposite of the home court advantage, um, still being able to get into a cab and have the driver be able to tell you what the splits were in the 200 freestyle from that night's race, that's a level of appreciation of something that I've dedicated my life to that I, you know, was, was really nice. 
Um, and, and they were so hospitable and, and they put on a, a great games. So it was perfect. Um, you know, so, uh, very special. But Athens was the birthplace of the Olympic games, um, ancient and modern and, and, um, and seeing, you know, uh, tribute to sport and, and art and architecture is, um, really, really meaningful. Um, you know, so it is part of who we are as a people, as a society, uh, this competitive nature uh, that exists in us. And sport is the healthiest way to exercise that competitive nature, right, uh, in, in a respectful way you know, that it celebrates sportsmanship and, and, and fair play and, and, and but also embraces this mm, <laughs> desire to go out and, and, and win, right, like to triumph and, and, and uh, and beat others uh, on the, in, uh, in the process. Like, the, it brings us some joy. Um, and, and so, I, yeah, I, I really love the Olympic movement. There's not, you know, a bad, uh, you know, location. Uh, I, I like all those locations for different reasons for the races. Um, I'm most proud of uh, a bronze medal in the 100 freestyle in Sydney. Um, you know, I'd been diagnosed uh, with, type 1 diabetes and autoimmune disease uh, a year and a half before the Olympic Games, told by doctors that it was the end of my swimming career, that it, it was impossible to do. Uh, I proved them wrong, changed the way diabetes management is taught in medical school uh, in the process, in sport and physical activity, and, and kind of um, nobody expected me in that race to medal. That, that was the gutsiest, that was the bravest swim that I ever had. And so um, I, I look back fondly on that one. But winning the, the, the defending my title in the 50 freestyle, back, winning back-to-back -back Olympic Games in the 50 freestyle in 2004, uh, just a beautiful evening, uh, being able to defend that title. Um, that, was, uh, that was the perfect race for me. So we'll get you out of here with this. Um, it's going to be a two-parter because you mentioned Atlanta. So I just wanted to ask you, I mean, you were there after the bombing went off. I mean, was the athletes concerned that there was going to be an, another terrorist act? And then the second part of the question, which is totally offline, you know, when we had Josh Davis on, we talked about the American dominance in swimming going all the way back to, to Johnny Weissmuller. How long do you think we'll continue to dominate the sport? As long as the NCAA system uh, continues to offer college scholarships, um, and that seems to be in jeopardy now with rule changes, um, you know, and the athletes getting paid. Um, is it going to cut into, you know, the revenue that support helps supported mm, non-revenue generating sports like swimming? I don't know. Right. Uh, a lot of questions about that. Um, but yeah, the, the United States, it's part of our culture. Uh, you know, maybe, it, it, not just exclusive. I live in California, but uh, I you know, spent a lot of time in, in Florida. And this, uh, there's a waterman mentality, uh, you know, that is part of Southern California culture. I mean, living and existing in the ocean and the water. And that's prior to Johnny Weissmiller, Duke Kahanamoku. Uh, was the you know prince, uh, prince from Hawaii that's credited with introducing surfing to the world? He was in the twenty four Olympics, um, and so yes, a very rich history of uh, you know swimming dominance for the United States. I don't see that changing. Um, it's just part of uh, our culture. Uh, for a lot of us living here in the United States, and we'll continue to swim fast. Nice.
And then the, the, the Atlanta bombing, was there any concern with the athletes after that happened? Oh yeah. 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 The Atlanta, I was, I was, uh, in a taxi cab just outside of the uh, Centennial Park uh, when that went off. Um, wow. and, um, it was a, a thing where you felt like a pop and like, like, like stop. And then, I mean, there's just so much activity going on that I didn't think it was like the furthest thing from my mind. Like, Oh, that was a terrorist actor. That was a pipe bomb or something like that. It just sounded like there were fireworks going off and concerts and, Wow. A very festive environment. Um, and, and, and just what a, a despicable act. Um, somebody to do that. Um, yeah. Well, thank you, Gary, for joining us tonight. Honor to have, have you on. Thank you so much. And uh, good luck with the, the race club and, and continued success there. Hey, thank you. Go Team USA. Go Team right. USA. USA. Thank you, Gary. Have, have a good night, everyone. Thank you for watching.